All right, that's an awesome start. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. And uh, it's been a while since we were there. Uh, we left off in Samaria and uh, with talking about the same person who's featured in the passage this week, Philip. But if you'll turn to Acts chapter number 8, we're going to begin verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter there as we um, look at the scripture together. Eight, uh, Acts eight twenty-six is where we'll be. And the Bible says there, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and take, overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And we, he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip was found at, at Azotus, passing through. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Father, thank you for the word of God, and we pray that you'll speak to it and use it in our lives today as we think about your work and how you use us and, God, how our lives can be a blessing to those who need to hear the, the good news, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, this passage, I was thinking about the eunuch, and it... um. It's interesting to me that they didn't say, they don't describe him as a successful Ethiopian uh, high-ranking gov government official over and over in the passage. The emphasis is on the idea that he's a eunuch. And um, I thought, why, didn't, why don't they put the emphasis on, you know, the other aspect of it? And there's an important reason from the passage why that's the case, and it's mainly uh, has to do with the idea that when you research eunuchs in the Bible, you will find that in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that they were excluded from the assembly of God's people. And so when you look closely, the, the um, conversation becomes, okay, when it talks about assembly, is it describing a small leadership group or is, or is assembly, does it mean he had no place, no, he wasn't welcome to the worship of the people of God? If that's the case, this gentleman left Sudan, basically. It's on the, uh, the continent of Africa. 
If you're like me and didn't pay that close attention in school, it's like when you look at the map, you will find that the road he's traveling south that goes toward Egypt and then below Egypt, which is also on the continent of Africa, which I'm like, you know, when you think about geography, it's like, okay, Egypt actually is on the continent of Africa, but then below Egypt is the Sudan or Ethiopia where this gentleman had traveled. So it's estimated taking about 25 uh, miles a day, that this was a a trip that would have taken him a week or so to make to Jerusalem. And then to get to Jerusalem, what he found is he was only welcome in the court of the Gentiles. And, of course, he was a seeker, and he would have understood that there were some barriers. But one of the things that defines this passage is those barriers that were assigned to this person because he was a castrated male. And I spent way more time thinking about this uh, idea of castrated males in the ancient world than I really wanted to this week in my study. Like researching, like, what was it? Where was this limit or prohibition that was placed on him? And what you find is a lot of ideas and some speculation, but some of it had to do with the idea that uh, in this case, for example, he was he was trusted. There was no intrigue. He had no... Uh, he had no sons or uh, anybody to aspire to be king. He, it, he, it had limited the possibility that at some place, because he was well-placed and powerful in his role, that he, his heir and he and others might become involved in intrigue, which you see all the time in the Bible. You see all the time that kings are overthrown, assassinated, so that some other person can take their place. Well, if... This person can't have heirs. He's not going to be involved in that kind of intrigue. The idea is out there that he was excluded from temple worship because often uh, with some of the cult practices in the ancient world that that, uh, castration of uh, males was a part of priesthood. That some uh, in some of the cultic religions among the uh, people that inhabited the land before Israel came there in Canaan, that that's the implication. Well, you can't be a part of the the uh, worship because we're possibly welcoming in a, a pagan priest or some of the things that you read. But it's just interesting that the first thing we hear about him is that he is a eunuch, and then the rest of the passage, that's how he's described. And it's important to think about that this person had experienced the life as an outsider, a desire, a desire in his heart to worship, but he was an outsider. And so there are basically two stories in this passage that run together, and one of them is about this man, his desire. He left Ethiopia. He traveled with a um, carriage, basically, and he was wealthy, obviously. People would say, well, you can't, he couldn't have afforded a scroll if he weren't a wealthy person. But he had a scroll of Isaiah that he's reading as he travels, So part of the story is about the Ethiopian eunuch, but part of the story is also about Philip and Philip's willingness to go as a witness and to do what he's told. And it's about missions. It's about the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1-8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I've got a book in my office by John Piper and it starts out with him saying that missions exist because worship does not. He says missions exist because worship does not. 
And I like how sometimes John Piper has a way of giving us a succinct idea that, that uh, in, you know, encapsulates a lot more. But what he is saying is that God's purpose is that every person on the earth would be a worshiper of him. That is, you know, sometimes people will say, I want to know God's will for my life, right? People are like, I, I want to understand. Usually what they mean is where should I work? Where should I live? Who should I marry? But the purpose that God has for every person's life, first and foremost, is that we would become worshipers. And really, you're not going to figure everything else out until we figure that part out. That God's will for us is that we would come to know him and worship him and serve him. And so we look at this story and it, it is interesting how, how many coincidences occur in it. We would say, you know, divine uh, coincidences. One writer said, God so desires to reach the ends of the earth that he contrives extravagant means uh, uh, to accomplish it. The first part that you see is an angel appears and speaks to Philip. And then af after that, the spirit directs Philip. And these coincidences include even the passage of scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading when Philip finds him. He's reading a passage of scripture that is completely about the suffering servant, the Messiah. And then the uh, the the things that God coordinates in the story and contrives. And what we can understand is that God is sovereign and he arranges uh, these encounters and calls his servants to obedience and to responsiveness. And thankfully we see that modeled in Philip in the story, that he is obedient when the angel appears to him and says, I want you to go. And it requires... If we're going to be like that, and I think part of the story is like, how do I make application of this to me? Well, am I obedient? Are my spiritual antenna up in a way so that I'm sensitive to how God is speaking and leading and where God wants me to be and the conversations that he wants me to have and the way my life is coordinating with his sovereign will and purpose that he arranges sometimes divine encounters that require us to be in the flow of his spirit. So that's the question, am I in the flow of his spirit and able to be used by God because I'm listening? So it's easy to go through life, I think, sometimes like a dog with its nose to the ground, insensitive to what's going on around us. You know, I just kind of have my head down, I'm doing my thing and uh, I know some people whose personality is like that, you know, it's like they've got the one single thing that they're committed to doing, and sometimes we don't see the bigger picture of what's happening in the world around us and how God may be speaking and leading. He speaks to believers and sends them, that's what we see in this story, and he speaks to unbelievers and he calls them. And then he makes believers of unbelievers and he sends them. And that's how God works in his missionary movement in the world. So what's needed uh, as we think about this passage for us to be used by God? How, what's going to be necessary in your life and my life if I'm going to be used by God? So that's what we're going to see is three necessities. And the first one is up there. And it basically says that we need the determination to listen and to respond. If we're going to be used by God, there needs to be within us this determination to listen and to respond. So God has this purpose that he's orchestrating. He's, he's arranging, and Philip is his instrument. 
And so when Philip uh, shows up and God speaks to him through an angel, through a messenger, then Philip already has an idea in his mind about his role in the world. He's in the instrument. And that's a healthy way for us to perceive ourselves is that maturing Christians grow to see ourselves as instruments that God can pick up and use, and it, just as Philip is used in this story. And we're created, all of us, for the purpose of glorifying and honoring God. He created us, the uh, scripture says in Ephesians chapter two, 2, verse 10, that we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're created and made by God, his workmanship, it says, for good works, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he, he already knows the, the spaces that we're going to occupy and the ways that our lives are going to be used by him in, in, in different situations and seasons in our, in our lives. I like this uh, scripture in First Samuel. You remember that uh, Samuel's mother prayed; she was barren, prayed for a child. God gave her this little boy, Samuel, and she gives him to God. You know, you think about that—to not have any children, to to have it be the desire of your heart to have a child, to get that child, and then to give that child away from the time he was a little boy. He gives him to Eli, who's not a very good person to give your kid away to either. He he is a priest, but he's not a great one. And his sons are even worse. But Samuel is the person that God is going to use as a reformer in that situation. And even though he's a little boy and his mom comes to visit him and you remember makes him the linen effort. And he, but he, he goes to sleep in the, in, in the temple quarters where he lives, the tabernacle. And he keeps hearing a voice and it's calling out to him. And so he goes and tells Eli what's happening. And he says, I'm here. You called me. And Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. But eventually Eli goes, aha, here's what's happening. Is actually God is speaking to this little boy, and he doesn't know it. And this is what he says. Therefore Eli says to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears." So Samuel went and lay down in his place. That, I think, is the idea about what it means to be on God's frequency, is that this little boy is learning something that all of us need to learn, which is basically when God is speaking, we say, I'm listening. Here I am. I'm listening. And so Samuel, you know, gives us a pattern here of how to respond to God and to listen to his voice and be in response of his essential. So Philip didn't, when the voice shows up here's sometimes what we want to be like when we we're like I, I think God is speaking to me here but I don't want to you know we start to rationalize sometimes and excuse ourselves but that's not what Philip did when when the angel the messenger of God shows up and says I want you to go to a desert place well think about what was happening Philip was has been in Samaria and he has been seeing the Samaritans come to faith in Christ, and, and the angel comes and says, go to the desert. I want you to go to a deserted place. That's what it's saying there. And the commentaries say there are two roads that led to Gaza and then led toward Egypt and toward the Sudan where he was going back to. And one of them uh, came to be in disuse. It was, it was not frequently traveled. That's the road that God told uh, Philip, I want you to go to the one that was deserted and not not 
used very often any longer. And so sometimes things sound absurd to us, and that must have sounded absurd to Philip too, but he didn't rationalize or argue. He went. And God's will is realized, I think, sometimes as much in our daily routines as in any other big dramatic thing, but just making up our minds that we're going to be on God's frequency is a, a big part of this. And it begins with being steeped in Scripture and prayer. The obvious things. How do I know God's will? Well, are we committed to reading the Scripture prayerfully and listening? That's a part of it. And do we determine that we'll yield to God, surrendering again and again, each day waking up and saying, here I am again, send me again? Do we divest ourselves of uh, opportunities or stubbornness? You know, if God comes to us again and again and says, I want to use you in this way, and we constantly say, no, that's an expression of stubbornness. And Philip is told to go to this deserted place. And sometimes when we're trying to determine what God is saying, it's like in this situation, we don't have all the information and it feels alien on, on account of that. In other words, he's like, okay, you're telling me to do something that to me doesn't make any sense, but he didn't have all the information. He didn't have the coordinates that God had. God had the ability to know when you get where I tell you to go, there is going to be a human being there, and this is a strategic assignment that God has. It's like when you get there, there's, but he didn't know that until he struck out and left and obeyed God. I heard we used to host this group called Life Action Revival at the church I pastored previously, and they traveled and tried to help uh, churches to regain their first love, basically, to affect spiritual renewal among congregations. And I remember hearing this gentleman teaching. He said, obedience is doing what God says when he says to do it with the right heart attitude. And it, that was uh, one of the, the ways that they taught families and tried to help the children think how you think as a parent about what you want from your child. You want them to... You know, obedience is doing what you're told when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. Well, that's just not a good advice to, for, for, as a parent to a child. It's good advice as, as an adult parent who's trying to follow God. Obedience is doing what God tells us when he says to do it with the right heart attitude. And it makes life a lot less complicated. Think about Jonah, if you want an illustration of someone who made their life really complicated because... They didn't do what God said when, when he said to do it with the right heart attitude. He's thrown into the sea, swallowed by a whale, regurgitated on the shore. You know, not fun. It doesn't sound like anyway. But when Philip responds to the Lord, he finds himself in the middle of a God thing. The Ethiopian eunuch was an important official on a continent without the gospel. The gospel was not at that time in Africa and one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, says that, and he wrote within about 70 years of this event, he said this Ethiopian, Ethiopian treasure, and he calls him by name and uh, you know, historical account outside of Scripture, he says he became the person who first believed and then took the gospel to the continent of Africa, uh, this Ethiopian. So even though... 
Philip's understanding of the situation was limited. He obeyed God, and he ends up being part of God's strategic plan for the gospel to spread in the way that Jesus had said, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. It's interesting, we usually read Acts, and we don't think about the gospel going to the Gentiles until we get to Cornelius, to the non-Jewish world, but actually... This is where the gospel starts to go to the non-Jewish world, is right here in this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. He rides in a carriage, reads from a scroll of Isaiah, and he's seeking God. Look at the scriptures here. I just put a bunch of scripture together that indicates some, uh, some ideas about what he's, this person's posture, his heart, the Ethiopian, who left home when he got to Jerusalem, Likely, you think about the picture of what Jesus had. When we, you remember, we just went through John and we saw Jesus clear the temple. He gets to the temple precinct, and what he finds probably is merchants and people that are welcomed on the idea of money making. But he himself is not welcomed, even though he's come with an earnest seeking heart. All the distance that he traveled to find reluctance and boundaries that prevented him from actually being a worshiper. And the Bible says about seeking God, without faith it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who carefully seek him. God rewards those, the Bible says, who seek him. This uh, also, Jeremiah 29, 13, we looked at both of these recently. But the scripture says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the scripture says, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this will be added to you. So over and over again in the scripture, we see how God says he honors the when our heart begins to seek after him. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Proverbs eight seventeen. Lamentations where we never go in the Bible. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So over and over again we see that God honors those that are searching him out. That if a person is sincere, sincerely seeking God, he says, I'm going to meet you right there at the point of in, that encounter. And that God still speaks. The Bible says in First uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That is, those who know Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, and God speaks and God guides uh, A.W. Tozer, I've got a couple of books that he, he wrote. He mostly, mostly wrote a lot of articles, but he said, God tells the man who cares. Always that thought stuck with me. God tells the man who cares. He says he has nothing to say to the frivolous person, but he tells the man or the person who cares. And the Ethiopian eunuch cares. He's reading an 800-year-old passage about the Messiah, uh, in, interestingly. And it accurately depicted Calvary. If you are familiar with Isaiah 53, and it gets preached a lot in the early church because it clearly shows us what happened to the Messiah, that he would suffer. And it was different than people thought. And the scripture lays it out 
carefully and plainly. And it forcefully makes the case for God's knowledge of the future, his foreknowledge, that God knows what's going to happen. We think about God's personality and his being compared to ours. He's not in time. He doesn't experience life in a linear uh, progression. God is outside of time, and he knows the end from the beginning. And so he was able to tell um, Isaiah 800 years or so beforehand what was going to happen in Jerusalem in the first century. And that's what this guy happens to be reading as he's traveling along in this deserted place out what would feel like in the middle of nowhere. Are you sure, God, you got your coordinates right? I'm not sure. But he goes out there and he finds this guy reading from this place in the scripture. And I think about how God, one, God cares. Sometimes we think, does God care? Yes, God cares enough to, to uh, commission somebody and send them out there to this guy by himself or with a small group of people. God cares and God orchestrates and organizes and connects. He doesn't force That's not how our will, our freedom works. But God cares and God pursues. And that's what's happening in this story. God is caring and pursuing and sending. And he funnels this person into an encounter. And sometimes with us, it's the same way. And the question then becomes, are we paying attention? Is our antenna up? Are we open? But also the passage shows us that we need confidence in the message of Scripture. This part, The passage is really a lot about God's revealed word in Scripture. The seeker invited Philip up to help him understand. Philip approaches this uh, chariot, carriage, probably someone else is driving, probably he's not traveling by himself. I don't think that's the idea at all. But Philip hears him reading, that, reading out loud because that's how people would have read. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The spirits told him, join yourself to this carriage. And the, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand unless someone helps me? And so, I don't know. I've had a lot of witnessing encounters in my life. Never any that felt quite this easy. <laughs> you know, this looks really easy to me. That this guy just asked him to come up and sit. And of course it does because he's been seeking the Lord anyway, and his heart is open. And he's choosing to be vulnerable and open, to ask for help. And people always have that option. You know, sometimes we are closed off and woefully self-sufficient. We think, I know everything I need, but what if instead our heart was open and asking, like this person in, in this narrative, He's not fixed in prideful adequacy. He doesn't say, I I know already enough. Yes, I know when he doesn't know. He's willing to uh, accept instruction and help. He's traveled hundreds of miles with an open heart. And his entire journey is centered in knowing God. And God met him right there because that's what God is like. I always love this passage of Scripture, even though the context of it is negative. In the Old Testament, it's a king who disobeyed God. And the prophet is sent to him, and the prophet, and I abbreviated it here, but I like it, what it says. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those who, whose heart is blameless toward him. And, 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 of course, that doesn't mean whose heart is perfect toward him. But I like the idea that the Bible says the eyes of the Lord 
or scanning to and fro throughout the whole earth. Don't you want to be that person that when God's looking around the face of the earth, he, he's able to look at you and say, Aha, there I have it, a person whose heart is completely loyal, who wants to honor and please me. And God says, By the way, I'm going to come help you now because I found you in that posture. And I think that's what God finds in both of these people. He finds on the one hand Philip, who's willing to go someplace absurd sounding, and he finds this other guy who left home on an absurd mission where he thought, I'm probably going to encounter rejection. But what we see about God is that God's not reluctant when he sees that kind of search happening. He This... God says, I'm also searching. You're looking, but I'm looking too. The place in the scroll where the eunuch reads is Isaiah 53, which describes Jesus' sacrificial atonement and suffering on the cross. So here what we have is a first century man reading an account of something that happened months or maybe a year before he is reading it. In other words, if you went back, you would say, Maybe even when he went to Jerusalem, he heard about this account of the crucified Messiah. It's possible it hadn't happened that long before he went there. We know because the church is brand new. Christ's resurrection has happened relatively recently. So a first century man reading an event that is describing something that happened a month to, you know, months to a year prior to this, but was written about 800 years prior to to that. That's the situation in the story. And this moment intersected perfectly with Philip's arrival. The passage describes when you read it, he's led as a sheep to the slaughter, Jesus' innocent offering of himself, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And the scripture says he offered himself up willingly, his righteous character, his death, his offer of himself, his surrender. Always described there like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he opened not his, his mouth. He doesn't make a defense, even though Matthew says that he, he said, Don't you know that I could call to my defense 10,000 angels? That's what Jesus said when he was on trial. He said, I could call 12 legions of angels, but that's not what he did. He was, as a lamb, he's silent before his shears. He doesn't open his mouth in protest or defense because he's come to this moment to be our savior and, our, and the sacrifice for our sins. He suffers unjustly, and the scripture shows us uh, in Romans 4.25, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous, that's what the scripture is describing here. He's the one who's sinless, the spotless lamb, taking the place of those who are blemished and needy, and he, he is reading this and so when Philip starts to preach this is what he's preaching he's taking that passage and preaching Jesus to this traveler this Ethiopian eunuch witnesses who stood by failed to grasp that he's dying for them in his humiliation his justice was taken away the scripture says in other words what happened is unjust but it but then it says and who will declare his generation and when Philip is preaching, this is his text. He uses this text to preach Jesus to the, to the eunuch. He preached good news about Jesus. The scripture says 
in Romans, this is quoting Isaiah also. And how are they to preach unless they're sin? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Philip uses his feet. He, he's sent. He preaches the gospel of Christ, this good news. He takes it out into this barren place. Once Philip went there, the, this was about as uncomplicated a situation as could be imagined. You know, we used to go out and do um, in-home visitation a lot back in the days when people didn't have ring cameras and nest security systems and stuff like that. And you could actually knock on someone's door and they might come to the door instead of looking and seeing you out there and not not being willing to have a conversation. But, you know, I've had some weird things happen in people. I've gone to people's homes. I remember in Augusta, I hadn't been a Christian all that long. They were sending us out on visitation teams. This dude came to the door in his underwear. I'm like, no, not tonight. But just odd things happen. It's hard to imagine a situation that was orchestrated for success quite as easily as this one was. God arranged this encounter, and then the man learns God's purpose in Christ, and it reminds us how the Scripture says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's what we see in this encounter is how the, exactly what's in God's heart comes out in the, this connection between two people, one seeking, the other willing to do what God has said. And so the other part of this passage, we think about what's necessary to be used by God. We need constant surrender to his revealed will, just to be obedient. And we see both of that. Again, two people who are willing to be obedient, the Ethiopian eunuch, because once he hears the gospel, he says, yes, I'm, I want to be baptized. What, what hinders me? You think about what he's asking when he says, what hinders me? He had experienced hindrance. That was what his experience was up to now. But now he hears the good news as an invitation to trust Christ. And he says, what hinders me from baptism? Here's water. And then he experiences baptism, which we have to assume Philip had explained to him as an aspect of following Jesus, that Jesus had said that the, the, you'll baptize them, teaching them all things I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit. So he's instantly willing to follow Jesus in, in this way. Previously, he'd been prevented because of his bodily disfigurement from joining the worship and community, but th- through Jesus, his hindrance is removed. It's interesting, I was thinking about that in this passage. What you really have is three people, all of whom could identify with rejection because the suffering service servant is rejected. He came to his own, and his own did what? Didn't receive him, John said. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him, he experienced rejection. Philip, one writer said, could, go, uh, could no longer be welcome at a, as a guest at the temple. Philip himself is experiencing rejection from the old way of worship, an introduction into a new and different kind of community. And then the same thing was true of the Ethiopian in this passage. All of them are kind of rejects. But welcomed into a new community and one creating a new community. It's interesting, this guy's been reading from Isaiah. Look at what Isaiah says. He was reading from Isaiah. This is what Isaiah's scroll says. Let not the foreigner 
who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. He says, Don't think of yourself you know, this way. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons, than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Isn't that interesting? Great commission being expressed through Isaiah. This person fully experiencing everything that God was saying as he's reading the scroll. Of, of Isaiah. And they're in a desert place, but they just so happen to come upon an oasis. Isn't that interesting? The phenomenal picture of what Jesus does. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What's this guy reading? Scroll of Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah says. And then we see what Jesus said. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this believer is committing to an emblem of rebirth. He went into what we've been talking about several weeks, the watery tomb, and emerged a new person. Actually was a new person. Went into the uh, this presentation, this dramatic portrayal of what was happening in his life, to be baptized, to say goodbye to the old person, and to be raised up, forgiven, and welcomed into the family of God. And then God's Spirit swept Philip away to his next assignment, and the eunuch went his way, the Bible says, rejoicing, because his guilt was removed, and his life had been made new. He belonged to God's family. He found hope, meaning, and forgiveness and true life, which is what we find in Christ. And Philip goes and preaches in a circuit around the cities of Philistia, what we would call modern-day Palestine, which in their day, Philistia were the border. That Philistines were the people of the sea. That's what it meant. And he went to those cities. What kind of cities are those? Outsiders, outcasts, foreigners. And the gospel is going out just in the way that Jesus d- describes. And he's pushing the good news into the seams of the Gentile world. That's what's happening, just like God said. I think about like a, an application of what we can see. I don't know how visible that is. Yeah, you can probably see that okay. But it, it, what we said in the beginning, here's what God does. God calls believers and he sends us out with the good news. He sends us to unbelievers who hear the good news and believe. And then he takes those unbelievers and he sends them out to be witnesses. And it's how witnessing works is that God says, I'm going to use your life with the people that you intersect with as you tell my story and the story of what I've done in you. And so God is speaking and leading and he speaks to believers and sends them and un- to unbelievers and he calls them. Then he makes unbelievers believers and he sends them. 
And evangelism is a task of the church. We think in the Bible, the evangelist is an office, a gift that God gives to some people who are uniquely able to share like a Billy Graham. Like Billy Graham was an evangelist. He was gifted, or Luis Palau. I don't know if you ever heard of Luis Palau. They call him the Billy Graham of the Latin world. He, he was used by God to communicate the gospel. Uh, what's the Calvary Chapel pastor's name? Uh, does these huge events in San Diego. Gifted evangelists. There are people like that. They're gifted evangelists. But evangelism is the task of the church. You may not be an evangelist, but the evangelism is the task of the church. It's how the church grows as we share the good news with other people. And God sends us with the gospel into the world and the relationships that we have. And sometimes uh, you know people I don't know, and I know people you don't know. But God, we're part of his plan to help people in their journey to understand and know God. I was talking to some folks this week about D. James Kennedy. Anybody remember D. James Kennedy? Uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Florida. He used to be on TV all the time. Evangelism Explosion. I don't know. Uh, Evangelism Explosion was a program that D. James Kennedy, who was a Calvinist, by the way, he, he wrote this material to teach lay people how to share the gospel, and that program was used for, so that hundreds of thousands of people came to be trained how to share their faith, and to lead other people to Christ, and hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Christ because of the the faithful gospel witness of uh, Calvinist. <laughs> so sometimes it's like we have these theological labels. It made me think about, and I've thought about this before. The story of the Jesus said there were two sons, and the father sent them into the vineyard, and the one son says, uh, "I'm going," uh, but he didn't go. And the other son says, I'm not going to go, but later on he changed his mind and he did go. And Jesus says, which one of these people did the will of their father? The one that, I'm, that said I'm going but didn't go or the one that said I'm not going but then he changed his mind and went? And Jesus, that's the question people, uh, Jesus put to people. And they said, well, obviously the one who went, that's the one. So the labels that we have about theology, uh, if you if you or averse to the idea of Calvinism, I wouldn't consider myself a Calvinist, and that's not the point I'm trying to make. What difference does it make the label that a person wears if you do not talk about the gospel? It doesn't matter. D. James Kennedy, Calvinist, trained people to share the faith, shared the faith himself. The important thing is that we obey Jesus and we share the good news of Christ to others as he has commissioned us to do. It is a task of the church. And then also to look at people, which is difficult sometimes, and to be able to see through the need that they have and to allow God to use us in the lives of people who he's already preparing. He's preparing those people. And we just need the courage to open our mouths and to be witnesses to him. I want to pray for us, and we're going to have a time of commitment this morning, and I'm going to encourage you to respond as you're led, and let's pray. Father, thank you for the story, this narrative of a person whose heart you had already prepared to follow after you and to make you known, and
to know you first, and we pray for the ability ourselves, God, to have the courage just to be obedient and to follow you and to occupy the places, even if they seem absurd to us, that you send us out. But God, help us to be willing, help us to be steeped in scripture, help us to be prayerful so that, Lord, we're in the flow of your spirit. God, help us overcome within us our fear and uh, intimidation and send us out into this world as people who have the good news of Christ in our hearts to share with those that need so desperately to know that there's a different life that they could experience if they just yield to you. And we pray, Father, too, that you'll prepare the hearts of people for these kinds of encounters. And we thank you that your word says that we ought to pray that you will raise up uh, those that can be sent out into your harvest. You said the the fields are wide unto harvest and that it's the laborers that are few. So God, we pray that we'll, you'll send out laborers into your harvest and we pray that we'll be a willing part of that. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Stand with me as we sing. <clears throat>